Lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, this is the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! Hey, I'm Trevor. Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Leo. I'm Austin. I'm Rachel. And, and we're the Boo Crew! Welcome to episode 53. Today's Fright Fact takes us to 1931, Frankenstein's Walk. The reason Frankenstein walked the way that Frankenstein walked in 1931's Frankenstein was that horror movies reflect the horror of the period. And a year earlier, in 1930, a massive polio outbreak struck America and Frankenstein walks as though he has polio paralysis. That is a Fright Fact. And off of that, to celebrate since it's June and it's Pride Month. We saw on uh, Fangoria's Instagram they've been featuring gay filmmakers and the director of Frankenstein is James Whale. And so that was just um, full representation that Fangoria was doing but just wanted to combine with that right back. This week we feature actors, directors, and creators Richard and Anastasia Alphman. Special guest host, Demi Moore. Fuck you. Seriously. Journey to the Forbidden Zone with Richard and discover the origins of the mystic knights of the Oingo Boingo. Shimmy up next to Anastasia as she breaks down her horror history and her extensive film work in the genre, including her collaborations with musician Morgan Sorn and, of course, her creative partner slash husband. Hear an update on their upcoming projects, hipsters, gangsters, aliens, and geeks, and the much-anticipated Forbidden Zone 2. First, it's off to the movies. The Queen said she was going to ream us with 20-inch cattle prods, and I'm still waiting... This is Richard Elfman. And with this is Anastasia Elfman. You are about, about to travel, travel to, to the, the sixth, sixth dimension, dimension with the Boo Crew. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for horror homework. All right, movie chattage, where we talk about what we saw. So the movie I watched is The Black Coat's Daughter. Hey, Dad, just calling to see where you and Mom are, if you're coming. Worst case, they come on Friday and everyone goes home and has a really nice break. After all, we can't let you live here. You do know about the sisters, don't you? They worship the devil. Written and directed by Osgood Perkins. If you don't know that name, it's Anthony Perkins' son oh. from famous uh, Psycho fame. I believe it's his first movie, if I'm not mistaken. It's a very small cast, but it stars Kiernan Shipka, who plays Cat. You also can recognize her as the character Sabrina from that TV show on Netflix. Also, there's Lucy Boynton, uh, who plays Rose, and Emma Roberts, who plays Joan. So this movie has a really interesting premise. It's two Catholic schoolgirls, Cat and Rose, who get left behind at their boarding school over winter break as the other girls leave, where it's rumored that the nuns are Satanists. Meanwhile, a disturbed mental patient, Joan, played by Emma Roberts, an escapee, is picked up by an elderly couple, played by James Remar and Lauren Holly, who drive her on a determined trip to the same school where the girls must force the supernatural and demonic possessions. Yeah, this movie's pretty twisted. It's like, <laughs> what you don't realize is you're watching two different timelines. Oh. And 
it's uh-huh. it's like okay well why is this girl's story alone and these other two girls storylines are together you're not sure like where the movie's going but it's shot very very well it's very beautifully shot these girls are left behind at this uh, boarding school they start to suspect that there's something weird going on with the uh, faculty there the nuns and the people that run that boarding school now the mystery with the other character played by Emma Roberts comes into play many times throughout the films through flashbacks you get to see a car wreck for example a car accident all you know is that perhaps one of her parents was killed in a car accident but you don't know like the story behind as to why and then what happened to the other parent but the story gets really bizarre even more twisted towards the end where you realize that nothing is as it seems and what i like is that this is probably one of the more original twists i've ever seen in a movie it's got a great exorcism scene that's really really short like it's the shortest exorcism i've ever seen in a movie before (laughs) like a richard elfman style exorcism exactly (laughs) a couple puffs of a cigar he's stomping your feet right (laughs) done then the purpose behind the demon like maybe the exorcism was not good for this girl wait the exorcism (laughs) Reverse, reverse exorcism. <laughs> <laughs> when you watch, when you when or you just watch, made it worse. I know it sounds really bizarre, oh, really twisted, gosh. but totally worth watching because it's just something so fresh. The first time I saw it, I'm like, I don't get it. So I had to go back and I watch it again, and I'm like. Holy shit! I didn't even see that twist, and then I was so excited when you get to the ending. You're like, now what? And then that's when I was thinking, oh, okay, it starts locking into place. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. a sign of a good movie. Yeah, totally. You're like, yeah. Still thinking about it. Yeah, and then for one of his first movies, it's so well done. You know, such a great concept, simple concept, but it just it just tells you that with excellent writing, you can achieve some great filmmaking with great entertainment value. Especially in the horror genre. When did this come out? Yeah, 2015. Like five years old, four years old. Yeah, it's a weird title because you're kind of like, well, I what's... keep forgetting it. Like you'd mentioned this before and I keep forgetting the title. Unfortunately, it's one of those titles. Yeah. And, and it sounds so cool. It's a 24 film. Oh, so that I mean, tells you a little, yeah. a little bit more about it. Yeah. It's and uh, going to be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and cool. And, for sure. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I think it's currently on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. I think that's where I saw it. And I, yes. I thought of you. Yeah, totally. I recommend it. You guys watch it. Cool. We're in. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome, says Demi Moore. Fuck you. Seriously. (laughs) This is like week two of this bullshit. I am like done. I'm done with this voice. Like I can't have it for the rest of my life. It just might be reality. Shut up. No, it's not. I could deal with it. It sounds sounds It could be worse. No, it was worse. Like See? last week, it, it was could worse. always be worse. Last week, she sounded like the girl from us. You- <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> like exactly. Oh, for like sure. that. oh wow. See, well, that's, that's cool. You can rent yourself out. Yeah. <laughs> this could be a new career, right? <laughs> Voice yeah. actor. Just get your red oh, jumpsuit, yeah. pair of scissors. Right. I know exactly. <laughs> Except I like walk in the room and everybody is like throwing like Purell on me, and I'm like, no, really, I'm not sake like this is just forever this is who you are now yeah <laughs> my gosh Here's Natasha Leone's phone double <laughs> thank you this is what I've been wanting to be for my whole life <laughs> so excited speaking of us I finally been catching up on my reading and uh, finally read that Fangoria issue with the us on the cover yeah. the yeah. interview between uh, P.T. Anderson and Jordan Peele. Have you guys read it? No. no. It's so good. It's just two film nerds nerding out almost exclusively about horror. Oh, it's so oh. great. And it's long. I don't know if it's edited. It feels very natural. 
Like, you know, sometimes the interviews, print, especially printed interviews, are really compacted. Yeah. Right. It feels like a natural, like, PTA. Wow. <laughs> like, very, right. like, conversational. Wow. And so they talk about everything. I mean, they talk about, there's the famously that list that Jordan Peele had about the films of their inspirational. And so they talk about things like that, like martyrs and stuff like that. But he mentions a film, not specifically as an inspiration, but it really sort of got me thinking and it's the film that Rachel and I have been talking about recently and so I thought took it as a sign and said okay this is what we should watch yeah Jordan Peele and and, uh, and Paul Thomas Anderson both approve I've loved this film for a long time so that's good reason just to watch it again 1987's Hellraiser I have seen the future of horror his name is Clive Barker <laughs> Hellraiser Beyond any terror you have imagined. Oh, oh wow. Bring That's on. a meal right there. Oh, my God. And like, so there's like, if you don't know, there's like 24 Hellraiser sequels. Not that many. There's a lot. There's a lot. Like, really? There's like, one came out last year. Like, yeah. it's crazy how many sequels there there's are. There's nine. Nine sequels. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. I would recommend, if anyone hasn't seen Hellraiser, or if they only know sort of like, hear the sequels, just erase everything that came because the first movie was written and directed by Clive Barker based on a novella that he wrote yeah and he had nothing to do with the rest of them as far as I know because they evolved the ideas in like ridiculous ways the idea in the original just like the original Nightmare on Elm Street the idea is so pure and so wonderful and in this case horrific and grotesque and it does something that i really love which is it creates a world that engages your imagination that forces you to fill in the blanks and leaves you wanting more so the film was just a little information about it as austin mentioned it was based on clive barker's novella called the hellbound heart and it was his directorial debut and new world funded the film for nine hundred thousand dollars and it grossed us and canada 14 million dollars it grossed 14 million dollars nice just some of the actors amazing actors that were in it was um frank was played by sheen chapman larry was played by andrew robinson and the amazing julia was claire higgins yes and christy was ashley lawrence and then pinhead of course was doug bradley yes and then what which I love is the skinless Frank was played by Oliver Smith, who is also so amazing. Yeah. 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 That's if creepy. Someone hasn't seen Hellraiser. We'll just leave that. Yes. Skinless Frank. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Should be more reason to go see it. Have you guys all seen Hellraiser? Oh, I, I have a funny story to share with you after that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've seen like bits and pieces of it, but I haven't seen like the full thing. Yeah. I remember watching Hellraiser when I started going down the path of, wow, I'm in ninth grade and there's so much horror I've never seen. And now I'm finally got the guts to watch so I watched Texas Chainsaw nice. all the Nightmare on Elm Streets right. and then I started down the Hellraiser path and I remember watching that first movie and feeling so depressed after yeah. like just the mood is yeah. so dark yeah. like it's definitely an amazing film but god does it ever have a bleak feel to it it right? sure yeah. does boy, yeah. boy. Clive Barker I mean he's got that tone in his writing if you've ever read his writing his writing's yeah. really intense so in 1987 like the movies that were out then it was like Evil Dead 2 Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors like yeah. horror has been started getting silly by that point and there wasn't something like this when it came out because you're right it's super bleak it's really dark it's about this guy frank who's the main character it opens with he buys a box a puzzle box and he uses the puzzle box to open a portal to hell for all of the pains and pleasures of hell 
and he gets torn apart and he's gone. And then into the house where he did this, his brother and sister-in-law move into the house. And then they realize that Frank had been squatting there. And then we start getting flashbacks that the wife had had this sort of torrid sexual affair with Frank. And so she's longing for him. And then there's an accident where uh, the brother uh, cuts his hand and his blood falls on the floor. And then Frank's soul starts coming, manifesting very slowly. And he's got like this super grotesque, amazing practical effects. Bob Keen did the practical effects. It's just gross. Very lifelike. Very lifelike. Yeah, I remember it being almost like too real. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Because you can see the muscle tissue like shiny. Yes. Very gooey, very very, juicy. So he needs more blood to complete his manifestation before the Cenobites that tear him apart come back looking for him, realizing that he's escaped hell but she loves him so there's a funny story where so the novella is called the hellbound heart and that was the original title of the movie the studio's like we need to change this title like it sounds like a romance we don't want to confuse people so they're trying to figure out a title and there's an older woman on there so he asked the crew so the older woman on the crew since the film is a well as clive barker put it is a, a romance it's a love story between frank the reconstructed skinless frank <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> and julia who is this very you know she's not necessarily in the most happiest uh, relationship and um, they have this toward love affair that she's always flashbacking on in a lot of ways i see it more as like a lust affair versus like a love story <laughs> sure <laughs> right. sense. the older woman on the set said Basically, the title of the film should be A Woman Will Do Anything to Get a Good Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Which I totally agree, which I think is actually the power of this film. It kind of, to me, is um, very much like a film noir. She's very much like a femme fatale character, Julia, is because she's very strong. She's very emotional and she's very sexual and she knows exactly what she wants and like how she's going to get it. And super stylish at the same time. If you're into like that 80s, yeah. 80s look, she's got 80s. that. She's like rocking those earrings, the eyeshadow, the hair. Like it's great, you know? Right. But I think like the film really, the beauty of the film is that it's their relationship and this world that uh, Clive Barker creates in this home, in this house, which to me, it's like this one location. I mean, there's so much more that happens, but it's really based in this house, this one room between like Julia and um, Frank that you really see this relationship build out. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of like um, James Wan's Insidious, where it's like all based in the house and all this stuff happens. Like this inner world is created in this one kind of location and it's other world. And so I kind of feel like Clive Barker also kind of embraced that idea of something small, but it's so big at the same time. That other world. We don't know what that is, like the Cenobites and hell and like, what is this? Like, what the fuck is going on? You get just as much information as you need. You work for it and it pays off, like in that great sort of world building. I mean, the Matrix does that too. Like, they don't show you everything. They tell you things in this expanded world. That's where the Matrix actually falls apart when they go to Zion and they actually show you everything. Doesn't that eventually happen? Is it Hellraiser 3 or there's one of them where they go into the world yeah. and see all the different kind of Cenobites yes. and hey, things? The Cenobites and... get stupid. Right. It just gets <laughs> dumb. I think 3 is a CD Cenobite that spits yes, CDs yes, in his that's mouth. Right. And, yes. Like they ruin the whole. And then they give like. So Pinhead isn't named Pinhead in the first one. He's just Head Cenobite. Just and, like Leatherface and in Texas. Yes. And his title is priest in the novella. So he's like this ancient, like Cenobite means someone who lives in a monastery. It's a religious term. So these are like the priests of hell is sort of the idea. The costume design is sort of based on Catholic wardrobe mixed with S&M and punk rock of the era, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. Looking back on it now, as its own, like just like none of the other movies, just this one standalone, beautiful Dark. film. 
dark, dark intense, un- uncomfortable, intense, sensual, and gross. <laughs> <laughs> and that iconic puzzle box, yeah. which is just uh, one of the greatest creations in horror cinema, right? Yeah, totally. With Freddy's glove and yeah, right. Totally. Clive Barker actually said that um, he was inspired by his grandfather because his grandfather brought home a puzzle box for him and he always thought that was really cool and he was thinking about how do you create a portal to hell and he didn't want to just do like draw a circle like on the ground you know and be like there's a portal he really liked the idea of the cube because in culture cubes have some type of magical power that he didn't know about and just felt like the cube was uh, a symbolic image that he could really hold on to. One quick thing is that they did have a cockroach wrangler. Whoa! Cockroach and a maggot wrangler. Oh, man. England at the time, female and male cockroaches couldn't be um, grouped together because the fear would be that they would um, basically mate and then be an infestation. So they had to have a wrangler to separate all the male and female cockroaches. And then they would keep them in the refrigerator because they moved so fast that when they took them out of the refrigerator, they were much slower moving. So it's easier to capture. It's easier to like actually capture and then to capture on film. Wow. wow. So there's some nasty real life lust going on at the same time as the... Uh... Cockroach lust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We went and checked out The Dead Don't Die. Woo-hoo. Excuse me, we're closed. Get away from me! What the hell was it? A wild animal? This is really awful. Maybe the worst thing I've ever seen. What was it, wild animals? So what are you thinking? I'm thinking zombies. What? You know, the undead. Ghouls. Released June 14th, directed by Jim Jarmusch. The small town of Centerville is plagued by zombies after polar fracking knocks the earth off its axis, <laughs> leaving an incredible ensemble cast centered mostly on the three-person police force that's made up of Bill Murray, Adam Driver, Chloe Savini. They got to deal with this. It's filled with social commentary about consumerism and obsession with technology and social media, as zombie movies are. Lauren, what did you think of this? You know I love zombie movies, but I didn't really love this one. It just was really slow. It was really, really slow. And I love a slow burn, but it usually if it pays off. This is the first Jim Jarmusch film that I've ever seen. And you can definitely feel a style that seems to echo through his other films from people I've yep. talked to. 100%. Have you guys, do you, you yeah. guys watch any of his movies? Oh, oh yeah. Um, a big fan. Actually, we saw Dead Don't Die. Oh, you did too? Yes. Yeah. Father's Day. That's yeah. great. <laughs> yes. It was her father's choice. I know. So <laughs> that's random. So what people tell me is that he likes long shots, dry sense of humor, there's a certain humor tone that is kind of consistent with his stuff, dry conversations, you know, just kind of a little quirky, which I loved some of the conversations primarily with Bill and Adam Driver. I was laughing out loud. Right. Yeah. But some of the scenes just for me, there'd be like long scenes of Tilda Swinton practicing her sword play because she's a Scottish samurai funeral parlor (laughs) director as one is right and it was like a hilarious idea on paper it was super funny but to watch some of the scenes I felt like I had to work a little bit and I'd start thinking about my laundry or whatever and I'd get lost a little bit you thought about the laundry yeah because there's so much of it now with (laughs) 
Remember, I was thinking of calling the fluff and fold. That's right. <laughs> That's what I was thinking, <laughs> calling the fluff and fold. Okay. But yeah, it's just like, just not my bag. I mean, I totally understand people loving that style. It's just not my style. I give the movie credit, though, because as we say, it's not easy to make a movie. And it's certainly not easy for an indie film director to pack six Oscar-nominated actors <laughs> yeah, and an Oscar winner. You got Tom Waits in there as kind of the narrator, the ever-present force in this movie and God, Selena Gomez is in it. Yeah. It's an incredible feat. And Larry Fessenden. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's right. <laughs> he was so good. He was so good yeah. in that. I, 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 I so like elbowed funny. Lauren. I was like, that's the guy that Jen Wexler yeah. talked about. Larry Fessenden. Yeah. One of my favorite little moments in the film when he feeds the cat. I know. And then licks the spoon. Everyone in the audience like, oh. was like, what? That's so <laughs> gross. It was yeah, a great character a, moment. <laughs> it had some good parts. It definitely yeah, it did. definitely had some good parts. The zombies looked great. Yeah. Yes. I loved how they kind of exploded into black dust mm-hmm. when they that were killed. That was the original was, thing. That was great. Like, yeah. I'd never seen that before. Yeah. I thought mm-hmm. that was a really interesting uh, addition. I feel like there were some storylines that weren't necessary. Like, they didn't lead anywhere. Why did we follow these people when nothing really happened? Well, that was the point. It's yeah. a satire. It's not a zombie movie. I mean, that's what people have said about this. That when Jim Jarmusch does your genre, does that mean your genre's over? Oh, interesting. That was when this was announced. A lot of people thought, like, I saw a lot of, like, threads and stuff online where people were like, is this a joke? Is Jim Jarmusch really doing a zombie movie? And if so, does that mean that is it over? Because it's now just open for satire exclusively. I don't know. Shaun of the Dead set the bar so high that everything else. Shaun of the Dead was not recently. That might have kicked it off in a way and now this closes the chapter. But I'm looking forward to Zombieland 2. Well, that might restart Because it. I love Zombieland. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of my favorite characters, though, I got to say, there. I mean, there's still great performances and uh, there's so many great actors in this thing. Yes. But one of my favorite characters was played by Caleb Landry Jones, who played the main woman's psycho brother in Get Out. Oh, yes. I was wondering where he was from. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was yes. looking. I was like, I know you. Where are you from? Yes. And then I looked it up after. Nice. Yeah. And he plays this awesome character, Bobby Wiggins, who runs the small town gas station. But the small town gas station is full of like rare horror yeah. comics. It's actually, yeah, it's it actually great. like a comic yeah. book store. Yeah, it's like old kids. issues of creepy. Yeah. And I know. It was awesome. And I love that character so much. He had like horror buttons on his vest. And he was pointing out, though, that the Selena Gomez was driving the same car that they had in Night of the Living Dead. And there was all this the extent of his film knowledge was quite impressive. It was very <laughs> impressive. It was great. I love watching him. I wish, you know, again, I wish that that storyline was explored a little more. I wish Selena Gomez's was explored a little more, but I get the style, right? It's just, right. I get what he was doing. It's just, it didn't, some people in the theater were going crazy, like yeah. laughing through the whole thing at every yeah. awkward pause. And, you know, I'm like, hey man, I get it. It's like a band that you love that is not popular and nobody else likes. There you go. It was one of my favorite movies of the year that I will not recommend to anybody. <laughs> Interesting. Because oh, wow. I don't think most people would like it, but I personally thought it was phenomenal from top to bottom. Even the stupid stuff I really loved. Even the stuff that was disappointing and didn't go anywhere and paid off in awkward ways, I appreciated it because it was so committed to that awkwardness and to that ridiculousness and taking the piss on just 
genre and cinema in general. I thought it was really funny. Uh, maybe I'd equate it to like to fans of like a Christopher Guest films. Either you're going to be super annoyed by them, or oh, it's going to be, the best. or or you're going to love them, <laughs> right? Love them. Or you're going to love them. Who hate them? Yeah, I there's know. people who hate them. Yeah, because or, or people yeah. hate Shaun of the Dead too. Like there's a what? Certain, Nobody fucking changed. I'm no. <laughs> no. I can't fucking hear that. Don't even say it. I don't want to think that the world's that cruel. Stop. My voice is gone and now you're telling me this. Well, they're out there all right. Well, uh, let me live in my perfect world. Let's go to some fun facts. All right. Fun facts. Jim explained to Iggy Pop that his zombie character backstory is that he and his girlfriend were killed in a motorcycle accident in 73 after leaving a Blue Oyster Cult concert. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. That's pretty funny, actually. And then uh, Steve Buscemi worked with Selena Gomez previously on one of my favorite movies, Hotel Transylvania. Oh, yeah. I yes. forgot about that. That's I right. I thought yeah. about that, yeah. He was the head of the werewolf yeah. family in Hotel Transylvania. <laughs> Carol Kane's zombie cameo, <laughs> yeah. which is amazing, was originally offered to Bruce Campbell. Oh. oh. Who turned it down, apparently after continually being known for makeup-heavy horror films. Oh. Is it because he didn't like Chardonnay? Chardonnay. <laughs> see it? Don't see it? Austin loved it. Wasn't my favorite thing, but I Rachel, can understand people liking it. Did you like it? I liked it. It is a certain taste, and I think, you know, sometimes, like, advertising doesn't quite always sell it the way you think it's going to be. Right. And I think maybe, in some ways, that maybe one of his biggest publicized films out yeah. there. I think when we looked it up, or when we did a little research on it, he usually releases to, like, three screens. Yeah. And this is, it's like... his widest opening ever at 613 screens. Oh, wow. Oh, my God, wow. So it's kind of, like, a different... He's opening to a different audience, and right. I think it's a different taste. So I think um, that's just another aspect to think right. about when you see the film. And the trailer is selling a different movie. That's the for sure. The trailer is not selling this movie. That's for sure. But the trailer does highlight some amazing, again, yes. amazing yes. scenes. Yes. Yep. Like yes. I could vi- envision a cut of this movie that I would love. Right. Yeah. I know exactly what I would cut out too. I would surround it with all the amazing jokes. This is just great dialogue that you I love. do your it own so phantom fun. edit. That would be great. Because <laughs> you have all that time. <laughs> Thinking about fluff and fold. Because it's not going to end well. <laughs> We'll tear your soul apart. Just keep saying to yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. It's only a movie that will have you living in the sixth dimension. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio, she is a remarkable dancer, actress, director, special effects, makeup, performance artist, and creator who is a cult following through her work in horror shorts for the likes of Crypt TV, Force of Nature Productions, the online series Tales from the Grave, an upcoming project for Troma Films, part of award-winning burlesque shows, and more. He changed the world of music, film, and theater forever, injecting it with creative vigor upon forming the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo in the early 70s, an explosive collective of at times 15 musicians at once playing everything from their own spirited versions of music from the 20s and 40s to the most fun, cinematic, and animated compositions ever thought possible. He left to pursue a career in filmmaking, leaving the reins to his little brother, who transformed it into the eight-piece rock group Oingo Boingo. His first directing project was a film that perhaps defined 
the Midnight Movie, the classic Forbidden Zone in 1982. The film reset the path to a whole new approach to creative movie making, changing the game, inspiring and giving rise to some of the biggest talents in music and film today, including Tim Burton. Not only an insanely creative musician, writer, director, and visionary, you can also add accomplished journalist, food critic, and barbecue chef to the list. We are honored to welcome Richard and Anastasia Elfman to the show. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for being here. I've got to say, this is the most amazing house I've ever, ever been to. That uh-huh. it, it's, it's a horror and fantasy menagerie uh, where you. every room is filled with the most amazing pieces. I could spend like a day here just uh-huh. going like foot by foot, panel by panel. It's amazing where the Boo Crew. <laughs> by the way, if, if you have room to barbecue out back, I'm your man. Uh, oh, yes. We grill for our cast and crews during productions. Oh, that's wow. so cool. Four of us, anyway, have had the pleasure of uh, tasting that very barbecue, and it is the best. Oh my gosh, it's so good. That you could ever ever get. It's crazy. It's incredible. The best salmon I've ever had. Like, Literally, ever. we talk about it still to this day. Well, did you guys get any of the steak? Yes, oh, I yes. did. I did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, did you? Yeah, oh, excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, so good. And the grilled veggies. Like, how do you make veggies taste that amazing? It was so it's good. The secret. Well, I'm married to a vegetarian. Ah. <laughs> <It's> the secret. They <laughs> we were so good. She's not political about it, but which grilled veggies you like with goat cheese and garlic and you're happy? Oh, yeah. So we know you guys are fans of all cinema, but focusing on the horror genre, what's your earliest memory of being impacted by the horror genre? Well, my brother Danny and I have been into horror since we were little kids. We subscribed to famous monsters. I'd get it, then I'd give it to Danny. But it, it was the original Frankenstein with Boris Karloff, Dracula with Bela Lugosi, the Wolfman with Lone Chaney Jr. Those were the ones as kids. And then you're a generation. My first memory was probably just like watching the thriller and just having that sink in like that's what I want to do. You know, I want to be one of those zombies. Oh, nice. (laughs) Around that time, they released that long form where it showed the making of, which really pulled back the curtain for the first time, which was awesome to see how all those things were made. It sparked a whole bunch of people. Yeah, that was was a brilliant video, like a seminal brilliant video. Talk a bit about putting together the Mystic Knights and what inspired you to do that. I was in a French theater company called the Grand Magic Circus, and it wasn't really a circus. It was kind of an avant-garde theater group. I actually kind of, what do you call, like people from the classical comedy Francais, and then avant-garde stuff, and then Peter Brook from the Royal Shakespeare Company became the executive producer, gave them a budget, they flew me out from California. As a matter of fact, that was Danny Elfman's first gig. We had a violinist from the Paris Opera, but he had to follow every note on the written score. The director and some of the people liked to variate a bit and improvise, and so Danny came over with his violin and could follow anybody. So he got the job for the summer. Oh, wow. <laughs> but anyway, I, I did that for a few years. The director, Jerome Savary, went on to become the director of the French National Theater. Brilliant guy, drunk and crazy <laughs> at times. And I decided to form my own group, so I kind of had the kernel of an idea and the inspiration for the Mystic Knights. And then I came back to California, started it, and then 
six months later, my brother, who had spent a year in Africa, got him to be the musical director, and that was the beginning of the Mystic Nights, which was kind of a musical theater troupe. What did you play at that time in L.A.? I'm a professional Latin percussionist. If everything else washes up in my life, I could play in a hardcore Latin <laughs> band and still be happy. You know, I also played a third trumpet. I'm not, a, you know, like bop, 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 right. bop, bop, right, right. bop, you know, that sort of stuff. I did a little bit of, I, I sing, but I, I don't have my brother's voice of an angel. I would do some character stuff. And you were doing that before the band started, or? Well, well I, I was doing that with... in Paris. Oh, okay. With the Mystic Knights, those were the things that I did, although my brother was the lead singer. How big was the band at that time? Probably 12 players. It was unwieldy to tour, and then kind of life and the industry and being viable shrunk down to an eight-person rock band, which was Oingo Boingo. At the time of the Mystic Knights, who were some of the bands that influenced the sound of the Mystic Knights? Nobody. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say like a Prokofiev, Shostakovich, Cab Calloway, Josephine wow. Baker. Oh, wow. Latin people. And then my brother came up with stuff that didn't relate to anything, which is completely original. He wasn't into music as a kid. Didn't play instruments. No record collection. Didn't go to concerts. And it was like out of the blue when he was 15 or 16, he could just suddenly became a musical genius. That's crazy. Wow. No, no, it's like some past lifetime thing or yeah, something wow. hit him in the head or wow. I don't know what it was. You can go online and hear some of those Mystic Knight original compositions and it's unbelievable. Well, the rule that I had back then was nothing contemporary. Right. So it was either reprising something from the past like Duke Ellington or Josephine Baker that people couldn't hear live anymore and they right. didn't even know about it or completely crazy avant-garde stuff that Danny would do. Everything original, right. yeah. nothing contemporary. We were almost a reaction to what contemporary music was at the time. Can you just remind us what was contemporary music at that time that you were reacting oh, to? Oh, bullshit from the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> like, like the Bee Gees and Steely yeah. Dan and yeah, yeah. all that. Yeah. What was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about music of the 20s, 30s, and 40s that speak to you? It isn't so much of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, but what I look for, and this is what I had in Forbidden Zone and what I'm going to have in Forbidden Zone 2, is there's memorable music and there's serviceable music. Serviceable music is Chicago. Loved the stage play, loved the film, but by the time you get to the car, you can't remember the music, you know, other than maybe like all that jazz or something like that, because it's not original, but it services the vehicle. Memorable music, you hear it once, you take it for life, and like an itch you want to scratch, you go back for more. So I search out memorable music. So it isn't just 20s, 30s, and 40s, but they're pieces that you hear, and they're going to be good a thousand years from now. We have our standards. We may not have our budget, but we have our standards. <laughs> <laughs> when did the filmmaking bug take over for you and lead you down that path to embarking on that journey to create the Forbidden Zone? Well, very simple. The Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo was shrinking down to Oingo Boingo. So here was my stage show. And so, hey, let's film the stage show. There it was. <laughs> Forbidden Zone was basically our mystic nights of the Oingo Boingo stage show with a little bit of plot glued around it. As a film, when you watch it, it seems like it would be impossible to even come close to duplicating it, even by today's standards and technology. There's so many elaborate animation sequences and nonlinear elements. It's very much like a waking dream. Talk a bit about the idea that was in your head. How much of that was on a script versus playing with all the elements in post-production and putting in those animated sequences? Or was that all? Well, all here's the thing. I, I took a dozen musical numbers from the stage show and glued a little plot around it and bang, did it. You know, it was like a feverish, surrealistic 
dream. Life is absurd. I don't know if any of you have noticed that. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of, at the time, were you aware of Alejandro Jodorowsky's movies? I saw it. I wasn't influenced by it. I might have seen it after I did Forbidden Zone. I liked his, I forgot the name of his first film. uh, Remember El Topo? El Topo, I I, I liked. Such a bizarre, I mean, talk about Fever Dream. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 He's he's a man with a vision. I respect him. Who ended up doing the animated sequences for you? A very gifted animator named John Muto, who was doing children's stuff at the time. Didn't really understand the budgetary process, but he was absolutely brilliant, and I'm indebted to him. But I set him up in like a garage sweatshop with a bunch of inkers, and this was one cell at a time, Max Fleischer. (laughs) So the seven minutes of animation cost me more than like the 70 (laughs) minutes of film. It bankrupted me. It's okay. A year later, I was recovered. Right, you're back. Bought another house. (laughs) At the time, did you know that you were like, wow, this is what I'm getting into with the animated part? Or would you just like, here's the bill, and you're like, oh, jeez. No more than Ahab jumping off the ship (laughs) onto the white whale. (laughs) But is that that bug? That's that filmmaking bug. You just knew you had to make this movie. Well, it's kind of like like if I start something, I finish it. I hold No matter matter what Ahab-like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was there any extra, like behind the scenes or stuff, or like extra footage that didn't get into the movie? Oh, yeah, a ton. Where's that footage now? It's in our garage, isn't it, honey? A vault, I think. Yeah, yeah, we're we're actually about to move it over to Danny's got a bigger storehouse. Has that ever been digitized, scanned, and No, I got, I I mean, right now I've got, we're just finishing a film, Hipsters, Gangsters, Aliens, and Geeks. Uh, Anastasia did five roles. (laughs) Yes! Everything from a nun to a junkie stripper. Nice. (laughs) Of course. Of course. Naturally. Yeah, exactly. My brain. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I could, I, I didn't bring my computer, I would show you guys a little bit. We're just finishing the thing right now. Anastasia, out of those five roles, did you have a favorite part that you played, like, character-wise? They were so different. The nun was fun. Young Ma. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> that's probably the one that I'll get the awards for, are, are, Young are Ma. We, are we PG-rated yes. or not? Oh, you can swear, do whatever, talk you about whatever. <laughs> Young Ma in front of a bunch of country yokels at the carnival learned the ping pong pussy trick with some gals at the reformatory and she'd fire the ball out from between her legs and then the yokel would smack it out into the audience and would fight over the ball like to sniff it. It's a very tender scene though. It's poignant. It's kind of poignant. So she's a giver. She's a giver. (laughs) Well, 24 years ballet. I mean, she was covered with a short skirt but uh, she had like a graceful thrust. <laughs> nice. You've got to ver- commit. One of the various things that attracted me to you, my oh. dear. <laughs> Anastasia, I'd like to know, what was your experience when you first discovered The Forbidden Zone? Oh, man. Wild. I just stumbled on it. I'm always, I'm constantly looking for inspiration. That's, you know, part of the thing of being an actor and a dancer. So right. it's like this constant search for just inspiration. And I stumbled upon that. And then handful of years, I stumbled upon him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, baby, want a date? <laughs> For years now, Anastasia, you've been performing as part of the Forbidden Zone live show. Describe a bit about what that is like for those who haven't been fortunate enough to attend one of those. It's sort of a vaudeville-esque pre-show that both Ricky and I co-produce, and I tap into the local talent when we're uh, screening it around. So we work together, and he gives me notes, and we work. She'll pick up burlesque artists and dancers and choreographers graph them. Wow. 
Oh, wow. In whatever city we're playing at. And I generally uh, perform two or three times during the show. That happens before the screening. So it's it's a way to kind of loosen up the crowd and liven things up a bit to get ready. <laughs> and depending oh, on where cool. we are, I barbecue after the screening. <laughs> You're kidding me. Wow. Really? Wow. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> I find it relaxing to, wow. to cook for a couple hundred people. Oh, How many times gosh. a year do you do the screening? Do you do, I mean, the show, like the uh, whole thing? Normally, every couple months, we're flown somewhere. The next one's in Korea. I, I don't think we can go because of some other festivals. And we've been kind of focusing on our film Hipsters, Gangsters, Aliens, and Geeks lately. How many days do you usually have to prep burlesque dancers or whoever's going to be performing the local people in a screening? It's usually like maybe a day or two. If I'm wow. lucky, maybe one rehearsal. I mean, I, I try to tap into people who are established, who are performing constantly and who want to work with us as well. Because I'll spend sometimes if we get a heads up, I'll spend a few weeks beforehand going back and forth and really fine tuning what we want to see on stage. And so like I work right next to all of these people. And where did your passion lie in becoming an entertainer? Was it through theater, dance? And what were some of your influences? I just love becoming other people and studying people and just the freedom that comes with creativity. And especially in the genre, there's a lot of different characters for women to play. And it's not like you're not pigeonholed or put in a box and you can just go completely wild. Although she was classical ballet, classical cello is where she came from. Kids got class. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I can hit my marks, let's say. Curves and class, that's what I look for. There you go. <laughs> I wanted to talk about or ask you about, because this is seriously one of my favorite movies and I had no idea at the time that you were involved in it when I had seen it in 1994. You get the band together, so to speak, and yourself and Matthew Bright do Shrunken Heads for Full Moon, which is their very first theatrical release. It's so outstanding and fun. What do you remember most about that production? <laughs> Charlie Band is an interesting and very productive person. You know, there were challenges. Like, like I had Meg Foster playing this forgive the expression, Bulldike crime boss. She was fantastic. The docks, but she got overheated. She very method, smoking cigars. And then the first night we shot it, she was passing out. And so we took her costume off, put it back, and they didn't give her the big bust. So people think she's playing a man, but she's playing a woman. Gotcha. Oh. Crime boss, Mary Big Mo Mahoney. People think, boy, you know, why did they hire a man for it? Why did they get this woman? <laughs> but that's the character. That was a fun little film. And I, I, I've done a couple Matthew Bright scripts. And I own a couple more that I've yet to shoot. Oh, oh, that's awesome. The other one that you guys did, Modern Vampires, was yeah, one of them. Yeah. They changed the name, went through another name too, Revenant. It was initially called Revenant, and then it became Modern Vampires. And Rick Baker is credited on that film. He just advised us. It was actually Roy Kinnerum. Okay, who did the effects on yeah, it. Yeah, 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 with soda effects. They just did our effects on Hipsters, Gangsters. Yeah, if anyone listening has not seen either Modern Vampires or Shrunken Heads, you gotta go track these films down. They're both incredible and, again, ahead of their time. Modern Vampires, hilarious and gory as hell. Amazing cast. Kim Cattrall. Udo Kier is in it. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's got... oh, 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 not just that. Playing a vampire and I got to stake him and I said, Udo, I've been waiting a generation to stake you again. <laughs> and he was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, Warhol's Dracula is one of my all-time favorite <laughs> right? dark yeah. vampire yeah. comedies. Van Helsing. Rod Steiger. Unbelievable. <laughs> Rod Steiger was amazing. And Rod Steiger was in uh, Brando, was it on the 
uh, on the waterfront. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he would recount great tales around oh, yeah? the set. Did you have anything to do with him being cast in that role? Yeah. Everything to do. I pursued the guy. Oh, yeah. He's just like, okay, okay he's going to well, be. Here's the thing is, we had no money, but once Rod agreed to do it, then a number of other actors came along. Gotcha. To work with him. So it was kind of uh, no budget engineering. Yeah, totally. They say mathematically speaking, Rod Steiger is actually the center of Hollywood filmmaking. Like they say, you know, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. It's not really Kevin Bacon. It's Rod Steiger. (laughs) Because he's been in so many movies across so many generations that like so many actors can trace themselves to him in just a couple steps. He was a handful. I've got to say he was brilliant. I was blessed to have him, but you know, the guy had issues. The very first day on the set, we had to pre-light everything and work all the, the less budget, the more planning you have to do. So I said, okay, Mr. Steiger, we're going to start here and, you know, do this part of the lines and then finish the lines over here. And he said, well, I haven't walked it out yet. Well, Mr. Steiger, we've pre-lit everything. Pre-lit Relit, and then he started screaming at me. Look, you fucking punk kid! Ilya Kazan never treated actors this way. And he's not just screaming at me, but there's the force inside oh of this God. charismatic oh, man. It's wow. a, his voice is like a stentorian trumpet, <laughs> where the hair is blowing back on my head, and the crew is floored, <laughs> terrified. This is our first day shooting. Oh man! And so I caved, wasted an hour. So instead of going from A to B, we bananaed around a little bit from A to B. And then I realized I can't shoot the film like this. I called his agent. And the next time I just ordered him to do what I wanted. And he'd scream and yell that Ilya Kazan never treated him this way. Do a brilliant part. And then call me at three in the morning asking if he was believable. (laughs) And I go, yes, Mr. Steiger. You were believable. But he was, you know, we had a young cast, you know, my gangbangers and stuff like that. Yeah. Rod would sit in and run lines with them. And he was very generous with other actors. And I was blessed to have him. That's great. I'm a stage director originally. I'm used to that. (laughs) (laughs) In Shrunken Heads, I wanted to ask you about the tech at the time. I guess it was like, what, in early 90s. I don't know where CGI was or how you did that effect because most of the movie has these kids' heads floating around doing stuff. How was that effect achieved at that time? Well, two ways. One, primitive CGI right. and mostly making giant coffee cans <laughs> with their actual heads on it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's outstanding. And to this day, actually, some of those heads are still floating around the prop trading market. Really? I, yeah. I've, I've seen really? a couple of them recently. Yeah. yeah. I think it was a year ago. You guys get to be a part of Darren Lynn Bowsman, the guy who's carried the torch for a lot of the Saw movies and done you know, just amazing horror stuff, puts together an immersive theater project, Theater Macabre, and you guys become part of the centerpiece of it. Can you explain hooking up with that guy and what your role was in okay, that Okay, Anastasia thing? was in a theater company called Force of Nature Productions, doing like plays, like just tons of plays. It was like a repertory group. And so I wrote a play for them, and in the play, I wrote that there was a band. So when it was time to do the play, we put a little band together for the play. And Darren is a fan of Anastasia, came to the play, saw the band, and hired us for the month of October. We'll be working with them next year. And the band is currently in Hipsters, Gangsters, Aliens, and Geeks, and playing together as a band. Mambo DeMonico. Oh, cool. So what's the makeup of the band? We have a a lead singer, Lena Marie Cardinal, five octaves, kind of like uh, Ema Sumac. And it's a Latin-flavored but quirky music by Ego Plum, who did the music with my brother Danny for Hipsters Gangsters. Anastasia's the Hoochie Coochie Dancer with Maracas. In terms of the immersive experience, 
kids? Did you guys fit into it like a storyline? When did someone run into you guys? We were in one place just playing kind of four numbers over and over for 12 groups of people. Oh. And then the, the one night that we went to the show, everyone still thought we were in the show. So the cast didn't immerse us in it. Yeah, oh, they, they, just thought, they just thought we were off stage for a oh. moment. <laughs> well, that's really, really cool. Yeah, yeah Darren's amazing. Can you guys describe your perfect Halloween? Like, what do you guys usually do on Halloween? We have a 11 year old daughter. So usually it's surrounded by trick or treating. The last few years, his brother's been doing these amazing Hollywood Bowl performances. Those have just like taken up the whole like couple weeks beforehand. We'll, going we'll to go every all three nights and yeah. bring friends every night. Oh, it's great. That's that's awesome. Nice. Yeah, I think that's what most of the cities does for Halloween now, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Anastasia, three million views right now for your short film Cake Man that you did for Crypt TV. It's so wild, isn't it? They have such like a big audience. Yeah, it's also I see a franchise with Cake Man. Seriously. Oh, it's so wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, my friend Sophia, she wrote and directed that and she called me one day and was like, I need a mom. And I was like, I can do that. We ended up shooting it and it was just like a two day shoot. Okay. Really quick. The monster was really scary and I got to scream. So it was wonderful. You have no idea how bloodied she's been this <laughs> last year. <laughs> I probably have some like behind my ear right now. Like, right, my exactly. hair's actually stained with some blood from my last film that I just finished. Does screaming come natural to you? Is it easy for you? Yeah, I would say every morning, right? right? That's how I wake you up. <laughs> and speaking of those shorts, again, for that Force of Nature Productions, you did that other one, the Voodoo You Do. That was originally a play that was was done with Force of Nature and our friend Andy wrote that and then it was so well received that we decided to make it into a short film and we filmed it at my house, our house. That was pretty wonderful. Yeah, She's yeah. in a few upcoming features right now too. Yeah, that's right. You got that new one for Troma that's coming out. That would be yeah. Kill Dolly Kill. Yeah, Dolly Deadly 2. That's awesome. <laughs> with my friend uh, Heidi Moore. And then we've got an upcoming project. Again, this will be a Matthew Bright script, but honestly Asia plays a quirky burlesque dancer, kind of like the burlesque you saw that she did with Morgan Sorn. Yes. And we're also wow. doing a project with Morgan Sorn that she's choreographing. But anyway, so she's this quirky burlesque dancer and this stuff happens to her and she's abused by a man and then he twists things at the trial. She goes to jail. She's abused there. And then she ends up selling her soul to a demon to get the power to take revenge. Nice. Very cool. Oh, wow. So anyway, it's something like I did the treatment, Matthew Bright's doing the script. After Forbidden Zone 2 and our Morgan Sorn project, that'll be the one we're going to do next. There'll be these bloody burlesque numbers. Anastasia, what is it about Morgan Sorn that you guys connect with on that creative level? You have worked with him a little bit in the past. I have. I, I stumbled upon him, again, just looking for a creative inspiration. And he's just such a beautiful person. And, and so talented. He has like a five octave range. And when he performs, he records on top of himself and harmonizes with that live, like in the moment. You guys caught a little taste yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. such an intense story weaver with his music and it just like completely tells a full story and I just really connected with the dark elements. I see demonic things like more in like a lighter terms and I just really connected with that and he's so wonderful. He let me create 
just freely with right. his music and he's so wonderful to collaborate with me. Here's the plan. Forbidden Zone 2 is going to be shot entirely on a soundstage. The wider things will be green screen and then we'll make sets kind of extrapolating from the green screen for the closer stuff. So I could shoot it on the moon. I could shoot it anywhere. And the project we're doing with Morgan Sorn, House of Stone, I'll probably piggyback it on the back of Forbidden Zone 2 and shoot it with the same crew on the same stage because it's all green screen and there'll be a lot of live action and a lot of animation, kind of like a fantasy based around his music and Anastasia's choreography. From Forbidden Zone 1 to Forbidden Zone 2, like the process of making those two movies with, you know, green screen and digital effects feels like it's night and day. I mean, it's going to be as zany as Forbidden Zone 1, but technology makes life easier for right. me now. I have no love of celluloid film. I've carried enough film cans, like <laughs> falling, breaking my fingers on airports. And, you know, with, uh, with red cameras... You know, we shot hipsters 4K, 6K, and 8K, depending. And, you know, you colorize it. You can't tell the difference between digital and film. But it's it's much easier for an independent filmmaker. You don't have to raise as much money. Is there any new horror movies that you guys have seen recently that you can recommend or old classic ones that you just are like your comfort or god we just resaw what we do in the shadow oh, oh yeah taika watiti mm. oh that's so good we're loving the show right now isn't it so good it's so I wonderful it. it's so <laughs> wonderful my only problem with it is it needs to be an hour long i agree like it's yes. it, what? it's not only not it's a not half long. an yeah. hour it's fucking 22 minutes with right. the commercials yeah you just want to live in that world <laughs> the addition of the emotional vampire i thought was just <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> so brilliant because they're yeah. out there yeah, yeah. They're out there. hundred percent. It's only really It's hilarious. You got these vampires going to the city council meetings. It's like, you know, uh, dude, I want the change. I want all the crucifixes gone from the churches. Yeah. It's hilarious, man. That's so good. So what stage is Forbidden Zone 2 at currently? Okay, so um, I did a crowdfunding thing to develop it that worked out very well. And then I had a company to shoot it that dragged me out for a year, which is what happens in Hollywood. And then I got some producers behind it, and we kind of raised like half the money. And they said, well, is there anything we can shoot quicker and cheaper that'll give us the wind in the sails to do it? So I did Hipsters, Gangsters, Aliens, and Geeks, which is just being finished right now. And I've got to say, it came out great. I had a dream cast a dream crew. My brother with his crew and Ego Plum did the most amazing score. An 87 minute film. We have 77 minutes of music. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. yeah, 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 the score should have cost more than the film. Right. right. <laughs> Danny just, uh, you know, he loved the footage and he said, hey, let me go. You know, I had to give him some notes. More theremin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's never bad. That's never bad. <laughs> and then Ego Plum added a dimension to it too with Bombo DeMonico. Yeah, Ego nice. Plum's fantastic. I've been listening to his stuff since probably, yeah, 97. Was oh, it? with his Ebola orchestra. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, we ended up seeing, were you guys with us when mm-hmm. we saw him at the, it was the CIA? Is that where we saw it? Oh, no, we didn't go to that show. No. Oh, that was good. But I know yeah. you guys are familiar with his, well, his Rachel, music as well. Yeah. I've known him for a while, actually. So when we, I was at your barbecue, we saw him again and it was awesome. So yeah, I've known his music just through friends. I loved his music so much. So I can't wait to hear it in the new film. The last um, two years, 
years, I think he's done 200 animation scores for Disney and Netflix and Nickelodeon. Oh, so and he was just it. given SpongeBob now, all the scores. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. Wow. So he's amazingly versatile and he works with Danny very, very well. That's fantastic. They're just like Fred and Ginger. <laughs> you, you know, where they'll exchange musical stems and stuff like that. What is the tone of hipsters, gangsters, aliens, aliens and, and geeks? geeks? It's a sci-fi comedy. And there's a plot. There's a classical three acts, but it's really crazy. Our hero... Eddie Pime, an out-of-work actor, he's having a bad day. His series is canceled. And then he wakes up with the key to the universe stuck up his ass. <laughs> like, literally? Yeah. <laughs> and he's thrust into a terrible conflict between the clowns and the aliens. Oh, man. <laughs> the clowns led by evil Emperor Vern Troyer. Wow. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Who makes up the cast? Who else? My two female leads were Rebecca Forsyth and Angeline Rose. Rose Troyer, but then we had French Stewart from Third Rock on the Sun. Yeah, he's who's, who's Professor von Scheisenberg, and he, he's like amazing. We had George Went from Cheers, oh nice, playing Father Mahoney. Nick Novicki, a brilliant little person actor from Boardwalk Empire, who gets possessed by Vern and ends up killing Father Mahoney. It's really another quite poignant scene. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Steve G, who from the Sarah Silverman show Guardians of the Galaxy. He's six six in a chicken suit with a uh, little Nick Novicki in a clown suit, who's the boss. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then Anastasia plays everybody else. She plays everybody else. <laughs> Basically, yeah. What is the plan for uh, release for, for Hipster Gangsters? Then? We have a distribution company that helped with the budget and stuff like that. So it's pretty much in their hands. I'm kind of sitting on it. They have like a worldwide marketing plan, but they'll release it slowly. You know, it's not Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a little film. I'm very pleased with the way it came out. The music is through the roof. I think the fans are going to have a lot of fun with it. This is bowls out raucous comedy. In terms of distribution of films, do you care if people see your new stuff in a theater or at home? Does it make a difference to you? Well, realistically, because of the, the budget and everything, it'll get a smaller theatrical release and most people will see it at home. And that's just the reality today. I'm fine with it as long as they see it. As long as they see it. <laughs> Spoken like a true filmmaker. Yeah. And then so after that, then the focus is back on Forbidden Zone 2. and Yeah, Forbidden Zone 2 yeah. and then the Anastasia Morgan Soren Project, House of Stone. Then I have another one called Dream Girl, which is kind of uh, Stephen King meets William Burroughs. This ancient, beautiful goddess suspended in eternal sleep gets into your mind at the moment of climax and turns it into a horrible nightmare and kills you. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing of interest there. Genius. (laughs) The Anastasia Matthew Bright project, we don't have a name yet. It's it's just a burlesque monster. That's hey, that works. (laughs) (laughs) And then Anastasia, I've been seeing some trailer stuff of something called Brides of Satan that you got coming out. Yeah, I just finished filming that with Joe Bizarro and funny like little story I kind of went in on to that to play like a muscled like a henchwoman who's just like kind of in the background and then because I don't know manager problems or whatever the lead villain the actress 
left and so he came over to me and offered me the part and I was like of course I'll take I can do that and so I had to like memorize like seven pages of dialogue within like 15 minutes oh and then just God. do it wow. that's what we'll see when it's done that's <laughs> wow. incredible yeah they said they want me in the second film I guess there's gonna be a Brides of Satan 2 of course yeah. there will <laughs> I was wondering is there some role that you would like to play I mean is there something out there because as a performer and a dancer I mean, you've done so much. I would say just something with some depth is great for women, you know, and something I, I love working with women directors and women writers, you know, just to get our stories out there. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I really keep an eye open for upcoming directors and writers that are especially women. So in the bloody burlesque one, she's going to kill a lot of men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Typical Tuesday. <laughs> Have you guys had any experience with like anything paranormal when filming or just at home or your travels? Well, I have a couple times when we did modern vampires, we're looking for like the vampire nightclub and there was this abandoned building downtown and then apparently two stories down, they had started a subway in the 30s and never finished it. There were two basement floors that the VA hospital had housed insane patients, and they went there and they never left. And I'm not afraid of ghosts. I have another ghost story. But the hair on the back of your neck stood up when you walked through these things Ugh. of like generations of souls, insane souls that were taken there and never left. If we paid you like so many million bucks, where would you spend the night? It wouldn't be there. Oh. <laughs> and it would have been a great vampire club, but it was too impractical getting cables down and equipment. Plus all the ghosts. Plus all the ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, another time, okay, this was uh, some house where there was a mass murder and this, uh, all this stuff happened. But um, I smoke cigars and I, I have my own exorcism is I blow cigar smoke and stamp my feet and go, get the fuck out of here. I'm here now. I mean, I'm much more afraid of a ghost inside of a big body with a club in his hand <laughs> than the ghost without the club in the body. <laughs> Good point. But, 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 but uh, any time people are worried about that, I do my exorcism. <laughs> Rick takes care of it all. <laughs> Anastasia, any experiences? Nothing really notable. I mean, I feel like our house is, Ricky, he'll argue with me, but I feel like our house is a little haunted. You know, I get weird vibes sometimes, or especially after watching a, a horror film, you know, I get a little jumpy, but she doesn't want to be upstairs alone. after. <laughs> yeah. scary Our favorite thing is watching horror films late at night. Yes. <laughs> you should walk around with cigar stamping your feet. I think that's the oh, answer. That's the key. Yeah. yeah. I got to do that more. <laughs> I want to know as such an insanely talented barbecue maestro, besides the steaks that you make best steak in LA my place period <laughs> yeah that's it that's no, no, it no, no no Peter Morton move over <laughs> <laughs> you self-taught grill master well I've been a food and wine writer forever and I used to do things with the various chefs and this and that a couple people got me started barbecuing but I, I just like to be outdoors around the fire we gotta have the first <laughs> annual boo crew barbecue oh yeah yes, yes. No, I, I'd then, love, no I'd love to cook here dude yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, oh and I promise I won't scare any ghosts away. Because <laughs> this place has got to be haunted. Okay, okay this is a, I, I, what a podcast radio audience, but you have no idea the visuals here. Every single room is packed 
with stuff with horror and fantasy. I mean, you could charge tours going through here. Wow. Well, thank you for that. That's amazing. <laughs> no, I feel like we just got knighted or something. You guys, thank you so much for being yes. here tonight. That was awesome. Yeah, thank you. So thank you. great, you guys. <laughs> Two thumbs up. Way up. That was the Boo Crew, episode 53. Special thanks to our guest Richard and Anastasia Elfman. Follow Richard at Richard Elfman on Twitter and Instagram. And Anastasia at Dahlia DeMont. That's E-A-H-L-I-A-D-I-M-O-N-T on Instagram. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying... We have such sights to show you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. Bye!